We're in John chapter 13. We've entered into Jerusalem. We've had the entrance in Jerusalem, several quotes from the Hebrew Bible, which is unusual for, for John. He doesn't do a lot of that. Kind of sounds more like Matthew when he does. And now we're in chapter 13, which will cover the Last Supper. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and to go to the Father. So his hour, you know, up until now, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. He wouldn't go do this because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. Well, now his hour has come. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Let's pause for just a moment. It's kind of interesting. He makes this statement about Judas and then just goes on. <laughs> he doesn't explicate it. He doesn't deal with it. He just simply says... The devil, verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And then immediately it goes on, and during supper. So, I mean, that's just like a statement of fact. Hmm. Now, what does that remind you of? A very similar instance of the same thing. Y'all remember? It's found over in Luke. The exact same thing, in a, in a sense, is articulated in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him to them. So Luke 22 is a very similar kind of statement is situated prior to the supper. This case, significantly prior to the supper, obviously, because Judas has, attempt to, has, a, has an opportunity to go off and confer with the chief priests and the officers of the temple police about how to go about betraying him. But the beginning of the verse is what's critical. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Uh, John 13 has a similar kind of rendition. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So that's, Judas has a daddy. Yes, Simon Iscariot. You know. That's interesting. Interesting little detail here. It doesn't talk about him going off to confer with the chief priests or the head of the temple police. Now that's included. There's no business about pieces of silver or anything like that. It just says that, uh, that the devil has placed it in a Judas's heart that this is what they're going to do, that he's going to betray him. So that doesn't show up later? I mean, that, nope. That's, that's all nope. we got. Huh? 
That is good. It's almost like he's just giving background to the... Um, What's going to happen next. Well, yeah, well, the hour has come. He's just saying that Jesus knew sure. the hour was here. And this is why he knew. This, is part, of, this is part of yeah. how the hour is going to actually now be occur, although it's going to take uh, several <laughs> chapters here. It's quite a long hour, Jesus, but nevertheless. Long sermon. Well, yes, this, the closing discourse in John's Gospel is the longest. It's extremely lengthy, and it's focused and delivered to the disciples. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Oh, the foot washing sequence. John Astle, is what I think. Yeah, I do too, actually. It's the image. Yeah. So here we have the, the foot washing scene. And this is unique to John. This is found nowhere in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The synoptics leave this out. They do not include this basic scene. It is found only in John. However... The characters of the disciples here in the whole chapter does seem to have a degree of continuity with the characters of the disciples in the synoptics, as we see immediately. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I mean, you know, you're not going to wash my feet too. Head and hands too. Don't stop with my feet. I need to be washed off. If you're going to be washing me, then wash me. Uh, if, if, if it takes washing me to, to, to be, have a part of you, then wash all of me. In other words, this impetuous desire to jump in all the way, to blatantly state something, and then 180 degree reversal. All or nothing. Huh? All or nothing. All or nothing. This is very characteristic of Peter in the synoptics. And we see it here in John. That's fascinating. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet. Now why is that? Because that's what gets dirty. Living in that world, walking around in sandals without socks or shoes... The thing that really gets grimy and icky and dirty is the feet. And it was the duty of a servant to wash the feet of, of, of a guest, especially honored guests. And that is the role that Jesus is taking, the role of a servant to wash the feet of the guests. That's... Um, it's quite an act of humility, which kind of informs why Peter's response was so negative to begin with. 
And then the realization that he's going to have to go through with this causes that 180 degree reversal. Well, have you ever had your feet washed by somebody else? Yeah, on many occasions. Yeah, uh, we did it in Disciple One. <laughs> it's powerful. It's powerful. I've done it in many worship services on Monday, Thursdays, and mm -hmm. I've done it. I've done it uh, in uh, team meetings for Emmaus walks and in other events like that. And it's a very, a very heart wrenching experience, yeah. uh, and a very humbling experience, powerful experience to wash someone else's feet, as well. It's. Um, it, it's something that you that everyone should have an opportunity to experience from both ends. Really, they they should. It's a spiritual experience. Um, oh, it was amazing to watch Bishop Moncure wash the feet of the candidates who were being ordained. Um, that's a very ancient tradition, where the feet of those being ordained have their feet washed by the bishop who will be ordaining them. And it's symbolic precisely of what Jesus does here. One who has bathed, and look at his statement. Jesus said to him, verse uh, 10, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. Now, that doesn't mean not all of you, Peter. Uh, no, it's not all of you as in this group of disciples, referencing Judas. There's been a debate by some people as to whether or not Judas was one of those who had his feet washed up. Yes, he was. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Okay. Again, this is found only in John's Gospel. And as an event, in many ways, takes the place of the sacrament of Holy Communion. As I said, John's Gospel does not contain the words of institution in the Last Supper. It contains them instead in John chapter 6, in, in, a, in, a, in a way. Do we know why? Do we have any idea why this is the only one in the synoptic stone? Don't address the washing of the feet? Exactly. Versus the key. I mean, he's, he's, it looks like it's a substitution. Though. It looks saying? like a substitution. Yeah. It does. And there are connections otherwise between the Last Supper in chapter 13 of John's Gospel and the Synoptic Gospels themselves. There are other connections, and we'll look at those in a minute, that indicate that this is the same meal, even though it's a different night. Remember the debate and the question and discussion with regards to what night in the synoptic class, what night this occurred on? In John's Gospel, it's very clear. It's the day before. John's Gospel has Jesus dying at about the same time as the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple for Passover. Hence the theological proclamation that Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Uh, the synoptic Gospels indicate that Jesus dies the next day. There are plenty of debates as to which is the proper interpretation thereof. And depending on who you read, you'll get one answer or the other. Johannine scholars tend to prefer John. Shock of shocks. Synoptic scholars tend to prefer the synoptic sequence. Shock of shocks. Um, that's open for debate, and I will not presume to 
to make a conclusion since I myself do not know. Uh, it's, it's a, I love the theological message contained therein, but it seems a little too convenient for the theological message. It seems like the theological message is governing the dating of the event more than anything else. Whereas in reality, I think the synoptics, at this point in time, I think the synoptics relate the actual dating more accurately. That Jesus died on, uh, on Passover day after having had a Passover-like meal with the disciples the night before. Which is exactly what he's doing here in John's Gospel, without question, having a Passover-like meal the night before. You kind of have to think that John's community must have been invested in some type of a foot washing. Yes, it seems like that is a factor because he's getting ready to tell them to do this. Foot washing was a very well-known Christian practice amongst, especially the monastic Christians, but also amongst uh, Christians throughout the entire empire. It was part of the ritual for the ordination of clergy and bishops. It was part of uh, the rituals that you went through for various events in your life. But was not the same kind of a sacramental event as the Eucharist, which occurred every day or every week. Which is interesting because it seems as though, as we're going to see in a moment, John, John depicts Jesus as saying, this is, do this. I have done it, you are to do it. And it's not as icky as Eucharist, you're not doing it. This is my body, this is my blood. He, he doesn't have to do that. Doesn't, he's already said earlier on in John's Gospel, he already says, eat me. I mean, he's taking care of that. I am the bread of life. He's already talked about that. So here, yeah, it's not as icky. But it's more literal. It's more literal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Physically there are, more icky. There are, <laughs> yes, it is. There are baptismal imagery contained within the concept here. We already water, saw that. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. The utilization of water, of pouring, a direct connection has been made to the foot washing with baptism as a remembrance of baptism. There are Christian communities today that celebrate it as a sacrament or certainly an ordinance who see it as a method for remembering one's baptism. After he had washed their feet, verse 12, after he had washed their feet and had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Here he's setting it up. He's doing exactly what the church has historically said is requisite for a sacrament. A, what's called a dominical sacrament or an event, a sacrament that is established by Jesus himself. He's telling them to do this. This is his equivalent to do this in remembrance of me. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Do this in remembrance of me could be put right there. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Now, of course, there's a theological meaning here. The idea that the leaders should lead by serving the people. Not lording it over, 
but serving. So that's contained in there, and that's sort of a subtle, or not so subtle, like an anvil on the head maybe, subtle mm -hmm. message to the church in general, the, the, the church at large in John's day, in the, in the 90s AD, you know, reminding church leadership that has a habit of getting a little bit too puffed up and, and uh, thinking too highly of itself, uh, guess what? Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We ought to be washing the people's feet. We ought to be serving as, as a servant, just as Christ the Lord served. If Jesus does this, how can we not serve too? Kind of idea. You can see how this could easily be used, how it could even be a statement by the Johannine church in general saying, look, people, lording it over each other as bishops and priests is not what we should be doing. Very truly, very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but it is to fulfill the scripture, the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now that's fascinating, the one who ate my bread. Now that's a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. And I'll just pop back to it and read it. Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted the heel against me. That's rather an obscure little, little verse to pull out of the Psalter and apply here, isn't it? And yet it's a fascinating mental image. My bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted the heel against me, whom I have nourished, might be another way of putting it. The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's the rendering in verse 18 of chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Of course, this is a reference to Judas, a reference to Judas. I tell you this now before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Drop that he there, that I am, bango, mm -hmm. ego ami. That's one of those examples of where there's no question that the intention of the author is to highlight that another I am statement. There are actually several in here, and there's gonna be another one in, in uh, chapter 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever receives one of one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Sort of, uh, sort of an ambassadorial kind of idea where the representative is sent, and when you receive that representative, you are receiving the one who sent him. It, it yes. seems to me that, he, that there's a, he's referring to a wider rift than just Judas. Hmm. The, uh, you know, I'm not speaking to, of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. Well, principally, okay, we know it's Judas to begin with. Now, is there a wider rift than that? Quite possibly, but not so much then and there as later on 
in later in, in later incarnation of the church by the day of the gospel being written. Yeah, that's what I'm... There's a drift in the church then that is being likened to Judas, which might be those Christians who have betrayed Jesus, quote-unquote, by not affirming him when pressed at the pain of death during persecutions. During persecutions, if you renounce Christ Jesus or you say, I am not a follower of Jesus, then you get to live. But if you say you're a follower of Jesus, well, the lions have lunch. And, and, and the, there was a great big debate in the church, even this early apparently, about that. And Judas was often pulled, and in the second and third centuries, uh, Judas was used as sort of the archetype of any Christian who would betray Jesus by denying him in the face of persecution. And that might be what is being referenced here. Remember, you've got the persecutions under underway in the 90s AD. And I think they might more accurately have compared those people to Peter. Well, there is a connection with that, and some of the church fathers do actually talk about that. But I guess it depends upon which is more important to you, beating up on the folk who have denied or doing what most of the church did, which is said, even though you have denied Christ, Christ still forgives you and you are welcomed back in. And so the response to most Christians who denied Jesus to survive was not judgmentalism, but instead forgiveness and a welcome back in with proper penitence and, and, and thus and such. Well, it's much more comparable what the lions, um, avoiding the lions by denying mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. to what Peter did, denying him mm -hmm. three times to avoid right. detection. And, and, and that, then actually and then of course we know the end of the story, which means that Peter then comes back mm -hmm. and is met by Christ and forgiven yeah. and goes on to become a great apostle. The question, one of the differences with regards to Judas is not only does he betray Jesus, but then he kills himself. And that's the end of the story. Uh, and many of the church fathers saw that as the end of the story for him, big time. It wasn't his fault. Satan came into it. Well, Satan him. came into it, but he still has to bear the, the price for that. The question becomes, what is the church's reaction and response? For those who come back and beg forgiveness, there is forgiveness. For those who don't, there is none. And Judas is seen as the archetype of those who don't come back. At least that's one of the ideas. And that may be an element of the larger rift. Also, this is really early in the process. This is the near the beginning of when the church is experiencing this level of persecution where you have an organized institution that is experiencing defections from its membership in the face of persecution. And that, it probably, in fact, we know it took them a while to come to groups with how to handle that. What do you, how do you handle schismatic Christians, Christians who've broken off from, from other Christian groups? How do you handle the aftermath? For example, a region of the church breaks off and follows its own theological leadership, and they still have baptisms and weddings and all that kind of stuff, and ordinations. When they come back into the church at large, do you accept those baptisms? Do you accept those ordinations? 
the, the Donatist controversy is an example of that. The Donatists pulled out of the church and went their own separate way for a few generations. When they tried to come back in, the question became, do we accept their baptisms? Do we accept their ordinations? And the answer was yes. They are doing what the church does. Therefore, even though they were broken from us, now they won't back in. We accept them. We don't rebaptize. We don't reordain. And that became a solution that has governed the church through to today. And uh, that idea stems from this, from this concept of the penitence and return is what's important and forgiveness is what's important here, not let's get a pound of flesh idea, which is the response that so many had to Judas. <laughs> here in John especially, but even later in the church. It's only been in recent generations that Judas has received uh, some grace from Christians in the recognition that he's fulfilling a role and is a very tragic character indeed. Uh, of course, the Gnostics adored Judas, but that's a different stream of the Christian uh, movement, uh, very different from, from, from today. And the uh, Gospel of Judas portrays him a lot different. <laughs> oh yeah, the Gospel of Judas portrays him as a tragic character who was forced by Jesus into betraying him. Yeah. Forced to take on the role of the betrayer because somebody had to, and so Jesus teaches him privately <coughs> that this is what's necessary to happen, and you're going to do this. And, and he doesn't kill himself. In no, he doesn't, which is how he was able to write it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> kind of convenient yeah. there. He just thought he killed himself. <laughs> um, but that's the, the question of the division within the church that Judas is used as a type for that is kind of echoed at in the verses here, which is what Pete was picking up on when he says that there seems to be more of a division here than just Judas. And it's referencing a division in the day that the gospel was written. I think that's probably true. Very truly I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So when, when someone comes proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and its truth, they are re and you receive that person, you are receiving me, as opposed to someone who comes proclaiming some other gospel. Don't do that. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclined, now notice that, the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, one of the, this is how one of the ways you identify who this beloved disciple is by matching that up with the same character over in the, the synoptics, and that, that's John. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it at, in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. That sounds causative. It does sound that causative, like doesn't it? The Gospel of Judas. <laughs> it seems as though... This is almost a contradiction with what's been said earlier. Yeah, exactly. He'd already been put into the heart. Uh-huh. He had already entered into him about yeah. ten paragraphs before that. <laughs> yeah. 
It almost sounds as if, oh, you don't want to receive this bread from Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> look what happens. Who's going to be first? Yeah. Oh. After he received the piece of bread, after he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, do quickly what you're going to do. There's a fabulous sermon by John Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople, with regards to that, that that's Jesus talking not to Judas, but to Satan within him. It's an amazing sermon that he preached. How he pulled all that out of there is just impressive. Uh, but um, it's, it's a very powerful uh, sermon. Do quickly what you're going to do. Well, you've got the statement here at the beginning, you know, uh -huh. that all things are in this Jesus' hands. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's pulling the strings. He's, telling he's in charge. People what, what to do and when to do it. This writer got messed up then because he's already told us that Satan was in Judas. Well, early, you know, earlier. You know, yeah. Way earlier. Satan comes and goes. I mean, <laughs> he comes the, and goes. Uh, it's a flashback. It's a, that's right. It's a also, plan. remember, lineal <laughs> time is not necessarily yeah, important John. to John. Amen. Or for that matter, yeah, important at all. <laughs> exactly. That matter, important at all. Yeah. The concept of lineal time is not necessarily what's governing here. Maybe Satan enters him again, or Satan is manifested in him, or something. It doesn't really say. All it says is Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, Satan, I think that's a fascinating connection. Do quickly what you're going to do. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the common purse, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival. Indicator right there that, you know, that would be the Passover meal the next day. Buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You know, the, the disciples are really stupid here. I mean, he <laughs> says, it is the one who I'm giving this bread. Now go do it. And they do. said, what's all that about? Do. <laughs> do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you repeat that? <laughs> McFly, <laughs> McFly, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Boy, you could have used more words there than just glorified repeatedly. <laughs> wow. And Greek is the same way. I mean, it's just that doxas all over again, again and again and again. Whew. Let's read that again. Now, the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Five glorifications. Ah, redundant. What does that mean? Very redundant. That's a lot of glory. Yeah. That's glory, indeed. Little children, I, kitties, little ones, tekna, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, 
Of course, these guys are Jews, and he's a Jew, but that doesn't matter. Remember, that's that the corporate entity, the Jews who opposed him, which in the synoptics comes out, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those folk. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Remember, he said that, and they said, what is this man going to do? Is he going to die? Uh, yeah. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. A new commandment? <laughs> a new commandment? A new commandment? It's the next sentence. It's new. As I. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you you also should love one another well but that's, that's Old Testament isn't it? that's Old Testament yeah it's Moses you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself and that's not just Israelite neighbor that was also extended to foreign neighbor how is it different how is it a new commandment you gotta love them like Jesus loved them. You gotta sacrifice, Papa. Thank you. You gotta get cute. And it goes back to that foot washing business and what's going yes, to sir. happen beyond it, which is his death. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. The, the word there is agape. Let's, let's replace it. I give you a new commandment that you should agape one another. Just as I have agaped you, you also should agape one another. Thank God he didn't say like, because then I would have a real problem with it. I'm going to give you a new commandment that you like one another, just as I have liked you, and you also should like one another. Forget it, Jesus. That's just too much to ask. I can't possibly like some of your kids. Be nice. So I'm, I'm sorry. I, well, I, I didn't hear what Richard said. What is it that makes this truly new? The focus, just as I have loved you. It's to love as Jesus has loved, or as Jesus is going to love by dying for them. It's the, it's the, it's the definition, the modification, just as I have loved you. The Old Testament is very clear. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is calling a one step higher mm -hmm. commitment. Not as you love yourself, but as Jesus has loved you, which is supposed to be a step higher. Well, it also yeah. is, is a new form of authentication for the, for the old commandment. In other words, it's, it's... He takes and reapplies it in a new, deeper sense. The, uh, it, uh, there's several issues here. I think you could argue that John doesn't need to co-opt the Eucharist because that particular ceremony was not as important in the same way Jesus is not the new... Moses, and they don't have all those stories about the, relating him to the Old Testament. There's kind of a, a new, a new source or a new foundation for for some of the same ideas, but it, but it's now coming straight from God through Jesus mm -hmm. to this community. I would say, however, that far being not as important as it is to say the synoptic communities, I'd say it's even more important. Because so much more of this gospel is taken up with the bread of life imagery. Far more than it is in the synoptics. A significant chunk of, of the gospel is taken up with identifying Jesus 
as the bread of life. And that is, an entire, is entirely a Eucharistic image. It's not here precisely because it's already been taken care of. It's already been addressed. Uh, this is not a chronological uh, rendition of the Last Supper. It's, it's dealing with other issues that are related to it. This issue of love is definitely related to it. But John's Gospel itself, a whole, a whole totality of it, but especially earlier on, this imagery of life. the bread of life is, is deeply about, rooted in how Eucharistic. How blood of life? He talks more water. Yeah. More water, but the blood comes later at the crucifixion itself. And it's important is identified there. He talks more about rivers of living water, which is a baptismal image which is contained therein. Um, it's, uh, there's no question that the concept of mediation, sacramental mediation, is critically important to John's community. It's how he's trying to address it here in chapter 13 and where he's focusing his attention. He's focusing on, on service to community from leaders, on recognizing the source of that service is straight from Jesus and to receive it faithfully. It's dealing with this issue of the division with, with Judas and, and Satan's governing him. And, and then it deals with this issue of the calling to love and to embody that love. Just as I have loved you, so also you should love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. My only point is that it doesn't seem to me to be important, as important to John to identify the Eucharist as a Passover Seder. Oh, absolutely not, because he doesn't identify, he doesn't identify the event. As, in fact, that's probably the governing factor. He doesn't identify the Eucharist as being, as occurring on it. A replacement for that no. seminal. Ex it, it, the whole the whole of Jesus is in fact that's point that's the point Jesus is our Passover sacrifice remember John the the, the 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 Baptist John the Baptist says there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the the Lamb of God that is taken in the Passover ritual all of that imagery is round wound up in Jesus I am the bread of life eat of me uh, all of that imagery is it stems all the way back to Passover imagery, and and since he then dies in John's Gospel at the time the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, starts at twelve noon and goes all the way through until sundown. He's he's dying at that time. He is therefore the Passover lamb. He therefore becomes his whole totality is the sacrifice. He himself is the Eucharist in that sense. Hence, hence he, John can't put it at this Last Supper. Instead, it happens the next day at his death, which, by the way, is amazingly presented at, in The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie. Mm -hmm. When they crucify Jesus, they keep on switching back and forth between the Last Supper as depicted in the synoptics and the crucifixion of Jesus, which makes the point again and again and again and again that this is Christ. Jesus is the sacrifice. This is Jesus. 
uh, as their sacrifice for the world. So, um, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> where I am going, you cannot come. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, I'm going to the bathroom. No. <laughs> Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Now right there we see another statement that we remember from the synoptics, don't we? Here are some of the parallels. There's a warning about betrayal by Judas. This is common, details common to all three synoptic gospels. A warning about betrayal by Judas. It occurs before the Eucharist in Mark chapter 14 and in Matthew 24. But it occurs after the Eucharist in Luke 22. And of course it occurs in John after the foot washing, which is interesting because in all three synoptics, Judas doesn't, unlike how it's depicted in most movies, as we read it in the synoptics, Judas doesn't leave before the meal. He's there. Similarly, in John's gospel, Judas is there for the foot washing, even though he's the one whom Jesus is going to betray. That's fascinating. But in 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 um, in the in in Mark and in Matthew, you have the warning occurring before the Eucharist. And in Luke, you have the warning occurring after the Eucharist. The theme of the betrayer is one who has eaten with Jesus occurs in different ways in Mark and in John. The statement, one of you will betray me, is found in Mark, Matthew, and John. The reference to dipping food in a dish is found in Mark, Matthew, and John. But the Johannine account is more dramatic. On the other hand, the puzzled reaction over whom Jesus means is more dramatic in Mark than in John. Hmm. Uh, a prediction of Peter's denial made during the meal in John, we just read it, and in Luke, after, uh, made after leaving the supper room on the way to the Mount of Olives in Mark and in Matthew. So in Mark and Matthew, it's made on the way to the Mount of Olives. But in Luke and in John, it occurs at the meal. Hmm. Another one, a prediction of the scattering of the disciples. During the supper, and this is over in, in, in chapter 14, verse 32, after the leaving uh, uh, is where it occurs in John, and after leaving the supper room in Mark and Matthew. Hmm. There are other connections and similarities as well, but especially the betrayal by Judas and the prediction of Peter's denial, those, those things are, are really fascinating. There are other connections even beyond those, but those are two of the biggies. Those are two of the biggies that are common for all four Gospels.
Again, from here on out, we now have essentially this discourse, the last discourse of Jesus. And it continues in chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16. It's a very long discourse. Let's, uh, let's move a little further on, 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, chapter 14 gets read most frequently in the church at funerals. funerals. And you usually hear it read from the King Jimmy. So it sounds a little different when you hear it in the NRSV or the NIV. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Mansions just sounds more interesting. <laughs> dwelling places. Rooms in some translations. Yeah, this one, NIV. That's the NIV? Rooms. Rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. All right, let's just pause there for a moment. Here we have Jesus, the interior decorator. I go and prepare a place for, I've often wondered what that preparing of the place is. I mean, the Father's house already has these rooms in it. So is he choosing the drapes and the, and the furniture or, or what? I mean, this, he's turning the what bed, is the preparing? The he's turning the bed back on, that's right. <laughs> Putting a chocolate on the pillow. That's right. <laughs> It's an interesting image. It makes you wonder. Yeah. It's one of those images that we hear frequently and we don't really think about. And of course, the King James uses uh, has some different verbiage. You know, the King James is 400 years old this year, 1611 to 2011. And 400 years, there can be a lot of, of evolution in the language, and there has been. And part of that evolution has resulted in the grammatical difference that you find in here. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That reads differently in the King Jimmy, where it says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, period. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. King James, its grammar construction is very different than it is here in most modern translations. The translation in the NRSV, and I think the translation in the NIV, how it deals with the grammar there is more accurate. Okay. More like what's in the Greek. More like what's in the Greek. In my father's house there are many dwelling places, period. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and place, prepare a place for you? It's, it becomes a question instead of a statement. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Okay, here we go. Here's the second coming. Here's the return business. I will come again and take you to myself. There's the return business where he comes back, not just to come back, but he comes back to come and get them. Oh, boy. The Darbyists love this one. Those who proclaim the return of Jesus to call the, the people of God to heaven, they love this one. Uh, and, of course, that, is, that concept is reflected in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. This idea that when believers die, Jesus meets them in the clouds to take them to heaven is the idea. Or that Jesus returns, which is more properly as articulated in Paul, Jesus returns at the end of time at the resurrection of all and meets them and takes them home. That's the image from 1 Corinthians and that's the image from 1 Thessalonians. And here we see something similar to it being articulated in John chapter 14. I will come again, and when I come again, I will take you to me. I will bring you to me, to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. So that, I, that idea that we see in 1 Thessalonians and we see in 1 Corinthians is being articulated here in John. Is John a, an apocalyptic yes. gospel in the sense that the end times are coming? And Matthew and John both have apocalyptic material in them. John, clearly this is an example of it. And we're hearing here in John an echo of that Pauline understanding that when the end comes, whatever that is, when the end comes, Jesus is going to be coming back to gather his people and take them to the Father's house in heaven. That's the image. And that is an image that is coherent with Pauline communities that predate the Johannine communities. And they probably got it from there. They probably got it from them, that whole idea. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Well, that's interesting. You know the way to the place where I am going? Where I am going, you know, and the way you know is another rendering from ancient authorities. but. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Hmm. The way to heaven. Hmm. There's a stairway to heaven. There's, there's, oh yeah. uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, you got to leave it up to Thomas. I mean, we've this seen it earlier, and here we got it again. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And now we come to one of the most often quoted passages of Jesus from John's Gospel. There have been several of them. This is another. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, let's stop there. No one comes unto the Father except through through me. They, they read that in the NIV. Read, read, read your verse 6. Yeah. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. Other rendering over there? What do you have there? But by me. But by me. But by me. Ego eimi haudas kai althea kai ha zoe. I am the way and the truth and the life. Odies erketai prostan patera e me de emu. No one comes unto the Father but by means of me, uh. through me, 
possibly because of me. The, the particle is de, D-I, de. And it means, in, with genitive case, which is what we have here, it means through or by means of. With the accusative case, it means because of. Well, those two kind of nuances are, are like, there's only like a hair's difference between them. The concept is, therefore, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus does, because of who Jesus is. The focus is on Jesus, not on anybody else. No one comes unto the Father but through me, except through me, but by means of me, except through means of me. Jesus said to him, to, the, to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am. Again, there's an ego amy statement. You could say, you could translate this. Jesus said to him, Yahweh is the way and the truth and the life. And if that ego amy translates exactly what Jesus said, you, you got it. You got it almost identically what he said. Yahweh is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except because of what I do, because of who I am, because of what I will do in the temporal sense. Which is different than through me. <sighs> through me, through, through, my, through, through my sacrifice, through, through, my, through me as like a doorway. But he's me. not the guardian of the doorway. You don't have to. Well, that's go Peter's job. Jesus. <laughs> 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 Silly he's the door. In other words, um, this is usually taken by those who want to limit salvation only to those who know Jesus. But it can be just as easily read as saying, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did, that's through what Christ Jesus did you have access to the Father. Not necessarily by knowing Christ or believing in Christ, but because of Christ. The accusative sense, uh, the, the sense of the passage, it, it's in genitive, but the accusative sense could also still be present here. Because of me. That's good, that's all good, but read verse seven. If you know me, if you know me, you know, quite literally, to have knowledge of, to have acquaintance with, to have experience with. Uh, if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he does place himself and knowledge of himself an experience of himself at the core of this idea. It becomes critically important to recognize that entrance into the mansions, into the rooms, into heaven comes through Jesus. And that become, means that he is the way. The way, the truth, and the life. This one has a Okay. way of saying that if you had known me you would have known my father also had 
Mm -hmm. That's future. Henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Okay. Other ancient authorities read, if you had known me, you would have known. Hmm. That's a little weird. Let's see. Let's see what the alternatives are. Uh, that is found in some manuscripts, including the majority text. The oldest and best readings, including P66, Sinaiticus, D. Washingtonius, 579, the old Latin, several others, uh, all render it differently, though. All render it as being in the future tense. You will know my father also. Not in the conditional. Mm. That's almost. Read yours again. Read verse 7 again. If you had known me, you would have known my That's father future also. Yeah, it's future perfect, but it's conditional. So he's talking about down the road. Yeah. So the past is sometime between the moment he's talking and then. Well, yeah. <laughs> read, read the NIV there, verse 7. <laughs> Boy, you know, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. If you really knew me? <laughs> really? You would? You would know my father as well. The majority, the reading that the uh, Nestle Alon uh, textual critics chose is the one that's reflected in the NRSV. If you know me, yeah, that is a if statement, but it's assumed to be true. If you know me, you will know my father also. If you know me, and you do, you will know my father also. That's a more positive statement, isn't it, than this somewhat... You really knew me. Well, this is more wiggle room in both of these. It lets other people in, doesn't it? It provides room. Provides room. So can you get there without him? John doesn't seem to think so. You can't get to Je you can't get to the Father. You can't get to heaven without what Jesus does. That is absolutely true. What he does is, and what he did without question, that's true. Correct. Now the the, the question you asked is, I think, huh. is can can you get to heaven without knowing Jesus? That's correct. That's the question. That is indeed the question. Well, that is how some people interpret the statement here, and they say no. You can't without knowing Jesus. But I don't read it as saying that. I think it, you could interpret it that way, but I don't think that's the only valid reading therein. The most important stress is through him, by means of, because of him. This sounds very Calvinistic. The focus <laughs> is on Jesus and what Jesus does, not what we do, not what any of us does. The focus then becomes on Jesus. So, which fits with, and actually that fits with the whole Johannine approach, which is everything's in Jesus' hands anyway. He's in charge. Hence what he does is what's important. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's all about me. And what I do and how I make it possible. He is the way, the pathway, the conduit, the door. What he does makes this possible. So if 
A Jew doesn't. Can a Jew, knowing of Jesus but not believing in him, but knowing of Yahweh and believing in him, would I know? I think I know what John would say. Okay, this is the root. That's the. um, hmm. Well, if you're a Christian universalist, the answer is yes. Of course. Because of what Jesus does, any and everybody can come to the Father. Well, it says in even a Jew who doesn't believe in him. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Uh-huh. That's why I'm saying this is coherent with the, the Jehanan approach to begin with. Because, because of what Jesus is and what Jesus does, the, the, the root of Christian universalism can be found right here. Interestingly enough, at the exact point where some Christians who are exclusivists would say, no. <laughs> yeah, You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to worship Jesus and Jesus only. And only by doing that do you enter into heaven. Well, that puts more stress on what we do and takes it off of who Jesus is. I mean, I could make a really good polemical argument here. But my conservative and fundamentalist brethren and sister who make those arguments are taking away from Jesus and putting more, heaping it on to people, making it a salvation by works and not by Christ Jesus and what Jesus did. Of course, that would not be genuine because I know that's not what they're doing. But that is, when when they put that stress there, you can you can make that argument. And it takes away from grace too. Well, grace is the through me. That's right. So grace is through, the through me. I'm making a decision who gets that grace if I say the people that that the Jews can't. If get we say that you've got to have a direct knowledge of Jesus in order to get through right. Him then we are the ones who are arrogating to ourselves the power and authority to make the decision as to who goes to heaven. Arrogating is almost like arrogance. That's what it is. (laughs) I have a real problem with that. I really do. Now, is knowing Jesus personally, uh, experientially, by faith, is that certainly? Yeah. I recommend that. that. I recommend that really highly. That gets my A star, you know, a seal of approval. Yeah, I recommend that. That's why I do what I do. But in the end, it's it's Jesus and what Jesus does, not. And that actually, it, all of that is coherent with what Jesus and the, the the Johannine approach. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who sets the way. Jesus is the way. And that's that's an ontological statement about him. It's a, it's a statement about his very nature and being as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, beyond that, I, I don't think he addresses the question of, well, what about those people who don't know Jesus? Paul addresses that question. He says if they're responding with the light that God has given them and doing the best they can with the light God has given them, then God honors that. He talks about that in Romans chapter 1. I think the problem is a lot of people don't understand they don't have a say so Thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we like to say, well, no, that's the way you have to do it or this way you got to do it, but in fact we have no say so. We're not in charge. That's, uh, as, you, as, you, as you aptly went back to, right back here in the beginning of chapter, of, of chapter 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Puts him in charge. 
puts Jesus in charge. And we've seen that again and again and again through the high affirmations of Jesus, front-loaded to the beginning, through this idea that Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient. All of that is contained at the very beginning of John's gospel and throughout it, where the people can't get him because his hour had not yet come. Now that his hour has come, they can get him. And that's because it's his will, it's the Father's will that this happens. It, it, Jesus is in charge, and that is the important point there. By shifting it off onto, onto us, you make the mistake. You pull it out of John's understanding. It's Johannine to say that Jesus is in charge. It's valid to say it's a good thing. You know him. Look at what he says in verse 7. If you know me, you will know my father also. I think that's really good. I think that's a good idea. And you, would, and you see Jesus saying similar things like that to the Jews. He says, if you really knew me, you'd know the Father. That's actually a quote from what he says earlier. If you, if you knew the one who sent me, you would know the Father. If you see what I do, you see what the Father does. Knowing Jesus is critically important, but it's Jesus who is the way. How far is this analogy off with all the snow we've had and everything? Jesus clears the way to where we need to be. And if we follow him, it's a lot easier. He's right there, the light's right there. And you know him and you follow him. But other people come along that don't know him, and they can, he's already cleared the way for them. The idea that is how it's generally articulated is that Jesus, because of Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the whole world, God can have anybody God wants, regardless of who they are, what they've done. Paul seems to indicate that based upon that, because of, because of what Jesus did, then God will judge people by the light they have received. And those who have never heard about Jesus, but who nevertheless follow the light they have received through natural revelation or other sources, God honors that and accepts people based on that. I think that's a very, um, that's a very wise position to take. <laughs> I'm always amazed at the number of people who are willing to tell God what he can't do. <laughs> God, you can't do that. Yeah, well, when I, when I went to the fair, they were handing out pamphlets, and there's, they were saying three things God can't do. He can't change, he can't lie, and he can't allow a sinner into heaven. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute, we're all <laughs> yeah, we got a problem. Yeah, we got a problem. <laughs> Who's going to get I'm in? There and I, it's going to be lonely. You know, I didn't want to get into a discussion with them, but... Well, my question would be, don't you think that God's omnipotent? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, then there's nothing that God can't do. If you believe yeah, in he omnipotence. He may not lie and he may not change, but it doesn't mean he can. It's it not God's true. nature to lie and it's not God's nature to change in that sense. Yeah. I agree. And sinners, you better believe sinners get into heaven. <laughs> Other than Christ. Boy. That's all that's there. Uh that whole, that whole question of omnipotence is a fascinating one. Um, can God make a rock so big you can't move it? Is, is my favorite philosophical question on the subject. Can God make a rock so big you can't move it? Well, if he can make a rock so big you can't move it, then he's not omnipotent because he can't move it. And if God can't make a rock so big you can't move it, then he's not omnipotent because he can't make it. That's a fascinating question. My dad... <laughs> being the mathematician and scientist that he was, came up with an answer to that that just kind of really made me want to tell him that he needed to be preaching and not me. 
Because mm-hmm. Dad said that God can make a rock so big he can't move it if the conditions uh, are right. In other words, there would be no place to move it to. It's not a limitation in his ability, but in the, in the structure of the universe. I said, now what? And he said, the rock would have to fill all of time and all of space, hence providing no place to move it. Or, contrapositively, you could say at a quantum state level, it's already in motion because it fills everything and every wind. And I said, okay, now wait a minute. Now let me get my brain around this. He says, you can't do it. I said, well, let me try. (laughs) So God, to make a rock so big, God can't move it. It must fill all of time and all of space. But in so being, it is in constant eternal motion anyway. And he says, exactly. I says, well, then just make the universe bigger in order to have a place to move (laughs) it to. And he says, the instant you do that, the rock expands to fill mm-hmm. that extra universal space and time. Like a gas. In other words, the limitation factor is not in God's ability. The limitation factor is in the nature of the universe. Or in our understanding of the nature well, of the universe. Well, yeah, ultimately correct. I'm thinking, what about infinity? <laughs> then he would have an infinite well, rock. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't like cars, Karen. But that was all Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I, when Dad said that, I says, now, that's a fascinating answer. And he says, all it is is quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. All it is is quantum mechanics. He says, you, the conditions of the test are insufficient to meet the concept of omnipotence. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.